Would you turn to Colossians chapter 2? We're moving through Colossians verse by verse, and today we'll be looking at verses 4 to 7. Verses 4 to 7. Colossians 2 verses 4 to 7. But what I want to do is I want to attach verse 3, which what we looked at last time. And the Word of God reads, In whom we are hidden, sorry, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, Nevertheless, I am with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Just as a way of review, last time we reflected on who Christ is. And we have come to know that he's the never-ending fountain of wisdom. And it was as though that Paul was uh, saying, come. Come, you who are thirsty and hunger for knowledge, come to Christ and let him quench your thirst. Jesus is the treasure chest hidden in him. Treasures, priceless truth, truth that leads to salvation. Pearls and diamonds of great value that lead to true knowledge of God. And it is as though that Paul is saying, you who are poor beggars looking for truth to be saved, searching for knowledge of God that truly satisfies. And it's as though that Paul is saying to them, stop. Search no further. Why? Why Would you waste your money or time and effort? Why would you spend what you have in a counterfeit fleeting treasures of this world? What can this world offer to you but lies and deceit? No, no, come to Christ. Come and dive into this bottomless ocean and grab Priceless treasures only found in Jesus alone. Treasures that would make all earthly riches that seem like grain of sand and in comparison to what is in Him. And as you dive into this ocean, here is a pearl of of redemption freely offered to you. Take it. You can have it. Enjoy it. It's yours. And here is a diamond of forgiveness of sins. Go ahead. This one is yours too. And there are gems of love, mercy, strength, companionship, endurance, 
precious stones of how to be a godly parent. How to be a loving church member. How to be a submissive wife. All this knowledge and infinitely more only found in Christ. So, Jesus is the master key that unlocks all spiritual understanding. He's the beacon, the lighthouse that shines and guides our path in a dark world that we live in. And what we looked at also, by implication, is outside of Christ then is ignorance and foolishness. In having Jesus, you have free access 24-7 in how to know God and salvation. Now, why is Paul saying this to the church of Colossae? Why? Well, it was a young church. It was about seven years old. And it was founded in a culturally diverse city. It was a mix of Greek and Jewish and um, mystical influence. And so false teachers at that time found this city to be a haven to spread their lies. These false teachers were like bloodthirsty wolves in sheep's clothing. And they wanted to tear apart the flock and drink their blood, if you like, by spreading their lies. Their false teaching came in at least four different ways. And what Paul is attempting to do in this chapter, chapter 2, is to rebuttal every um, false teaching, every kind of false teaching. Let me just give you a quick overview of what is ahead for us in the rest of the chapter, chapter 2. The kinds of false teaching that was uh, bombarding the church of Colossae. Number one, there is Gnosticism. And you find that in verse 8 where they claim that Jesus is not enough. Well, what do you need? You need human wisdom. You need that over and above Jesus' teaching. And there is legalism. Well, you need to be circumcised and follow man's tradition for salvation and spiritual growth. And there is... There is that word that I find it hard to pronounce, but I'm going to try one more time. Don't try this at home if you don't know how to do it. But uh, <clears throat> asceticism. <laughs> spell it. <laughs> you go and spell it and look for it in, in Google and see how you pronounce it. Now, what, is, what does this word mean? It involves severe self-infliction. It's like monks and nuns of nowadays where, you know, um, you, you don't eat certain kind of food. You wear uncomfortable clothes or sleep in hard surface. Perhaps somehow you make the gods look upon you with pity. They feel sorry for you and that way you'll be purified. And there is mysticism, which involves this direct and deep personal experience. This is where you sense that you are in union with God apart from Jesus Christ, which is obviously not based on truth. All it is just some 
powerful feelings that you cultivate, you arouse through some sort of repetition of whatever, chanting or other practices. These false teachers were like snakes. And their teaching was like a, a cocktail of potent venom. And they wanted to inject this venom in, in the veins of this little flock. And brothers, we're in the 21st century. And may I say, nothing changed. Nothing changed. We too live in a diverse culture and false teaching remain to be, and I say, the most deadly weapon we face. Sure, maybe the isms have changed, have altered, but the, but the danger remains to be the same. There is legalism, where unless I do what these people tell me to do, I don't feel right. I've got to comply with what the world tells me to do. Or there is something wrong with me. There is feminism, where a woman finds her identity in her career path. If she stays at home to take care of her children and doesn't wear a suit or carries a business bag, if she doesn't have a job, then she's considered to be a loser. And there is humanism, where a man views himself to be in the center of the universe. His goal is his happiness apart from God. His means to grow is to enhance his self-esteem. His thermometer of his well-being is his own feeling. And his Bible is his own heart. That's why he follows, right? Wave upon wave. A tsunami of ideologies that try to pull us away from the path that God ordained for us. Hmm. I want to say there is nothing more important to talk about today than how to counteract the danger of false teaching. Now, what is the solution? What should Paul do if he wants to help this little flock from being destroyed by the hands of false teachers? Well, this is precisely why he wrote verse 3. This is why he said that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is exactly how to counteract the lies of the world. Simple. No Christ. You're just saying that with some. This is just your opinion. No, it's not my opinion. If you don't believe me, all you need to do is read the text. Read the text, read verse 4. I say this, meaning I said what I said about verse 3. Why? So that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. No one, who's he referring to? The false teachers. Delude you. That is to dupe you, to, to pull a, the wool over your eyes, to trick you. And how do they do that? With persuasive arguments, smooth talk, a nice speech, something that is attractive to listen to. 
They dip their poison in honey and they feed it to you. Hey friend, don't you want to feel good about yourself? Huh? You know, it's good to be a Christian. It's not bad at all. Continue to follow God. That's not a problem. But what about your prestige before people? What about your own personal comfort? There's nothing wrong with a better lifestyle. Obviously, there is nothing wrong. It all sounds reasonable. Little by little. Well, do you know how you can tell that God loves you, that he has his favor upon you? How? When you have a better lifestyle. So, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to do this and that and the other thing. And when you're done, and when you feel good about yourself, you say, ah, oh, look, doesn't God love me? Of course he does. How do you know? There's nothing about Christ, nothing about the cross. Just, just look at the blessings. Look at all the blessings that God has given me. Of course he loves me. Of course, of course I must be a holy man. And we begin to judge and assess life and circumstances, situations through what we have or lack of. Smooth words. They con you. They make you move away from the riches that can only be found in Jesus Christ. So what does Paul have to do to protect his flock from buying into these lies? More specifically than just only verse 3, more specifically, now in our passage this morning, he gives five areas of encouragement, five tips. And to make it simple for you, I call them five B's. And those five B's will help to protect us from the lies of false teaching, from the deception of the world. Now, I don't mean five B's, you know, the, the fly and the hover and all that. I'm talking about becoming. Five becoming. B, number one, be a good soldier. Be a good soldier. That's how you overcome the lies of the world, by being good soldiers. So we'll read verse five. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit. We know that Paul, once again, if you recall, he's been in prison in Rome, hundreds of miles away from this city, from this church. And he's basically saying here, just because I am in prison and I'm far removed from you, doesn't mean I don't care. I do care about you. You are my thoughts. My heart goes out to you. My mouth is full of prayer for you. And then he moves on and he identifies two virtues. Two important virtues that they need in order to neutralize the assault of false teachers. And the assumption here is that Epaphras... The evangelist who, when he moved to Rome to see Paul, he would have told Paul that they have these two virtues. They already have them. That's good. But they would have been perhaps seedlings, little tiny virtues. 
So what Paul is saying here now, continuing on, is rejoicing to see them. He's basically saying, that's excellent, you've got them, protect them, make sure they grow. You need to use them, again, as false teaching. Now, what are they? He then, you probably won't be able to see this in the English, but he uses two military metaphors to describe these two virtues. They're at war. And to win the battle, number one, there has to be solidarity in the army of God. Where do we get that from? So we read the first thing is your good discipline. He's rejoicing and he saw that it's his good discipline. Now the word good discipline is kind of, it's a, it's a technical word that is used uh, for war. 2,000 years ago. And and it speaks of a well-organized army. An army that's standing shoulder to shoulder, arm to arm. And they form this powerful, unbroken line. Where each soldier knowing his place and his role in that grand grand, uh, strategy of the battle. The army that has no unity... No formation. When they are scattered everywhere, what happens to the soldiers? They become weak, right? And they become vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. Why? Well, there's disorder, there's disarray. But not so with the Colossians. Paul is commending their good discipline. Nobody's stepping over or trying to steal the role of another. They all have one unity of purpose. One discipline. They're all organized. Each brother, you can imagine, is protecting his brother's back. Ready to die for him. Right? How important is this for us, brothers? To cultivate this virtue. That we have this spiritual lineup formation. That we together would encourage one another. Right? Admonish one another so that we together could resist the deceptive ideologies and these worldly temptations. Right? I need you, you need me, you need her, and she needs you. We're all in need of one another. No soldier can win the war on his own. There has to be good discipline. There has to be moving away from our comfort zone and feeling good about ourselves. Move away from these mentalities and lay down, be willing to lay down our lives for one another. All right, that's the first metaphor. Still, still in the first point, being a good soldier. We move on and he gives us another metaphor of being a good soldier. He says, and the stability of your faith in Christ. Again, the word stability is a technical word. And it speaks of a language in the battlefield. More specifically, the loyalty in the battlefield. The soldiers are standing their ground. Unmoved, they're like a wall of shields, steadfastness, resilience. There's no external pressure by the enemy in no way going to make them retreat. They're determined that the enemy will not take a foothold. 
And so also the Colossians. And let's even look more specifically. It's not just general stability. It's the stability of what? Your faith in Christ. This is where the stability is. Your faith. In other words, they're committed to rest, to rest in Christ. They're resolved. Their faith in Jesus is unmovable. Their belief in Jesus is solid. They're determined. It's kind of like they're getting together and saying, guys, let's huddle up. Let's make that decision. That there's no arrows of doubt. No spear of deceit will shake our reliance on Jesus. And so, Paul is saying, I'm rejoicing over that. Right? Of course he, of course he is, wouldn't you? So, us two brothers, we must not give any room for the lies of this world. How? Continue to grow in our faith in Christ. Continue to believe that He is all in all. Their faith in Christ is stable. Meaning they continue determined to believe that He is God in flesh, that His love for us is as deep as the ocean, that His blood does cleanse us from our sin. And what Paul is saying to Colossians and even to us today, be a good soldier. Together, be set in your ways. Don't move anywhere away from the truth that is found in Christ. What is the truth? That he is supreme. He is sufficient in all things. Be a good soldier. Second, be is a be a faithful follower. Be a faithful follower. Very, very important verse, this one, verse 6. Let's have a look at it. It says, therefore. That's what makes it so important. It's a big word. It means in conclusion. So then, in summary. And Paul is basically saying here, I'm pulling everything together that I said thus far. The very reason why I wrote all those things that I wrote to you is because of this one thing. What is it, Paul? As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. This is the only in this passage, the only imperative command. Walk in Him. It's present tense, meaning continue and never stop walking in Him the way you received Him. What does this mean? <clears throat> Let me help you understand what this means by bringing a misconception that we see in many churches. Some people... In their evangelistic encounter, they ask the sinner, would you accept Jesus as your Savior? Well, that's good. That's not bad. Very good. But this word received has in it far more than just the word accept. 
if you look how this word is used in the New Testament, you find, for example, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, where Joseph took Mary, he received Mary as his wedded wife. Now, what does this mean? Joseph did not take Mary or receive Mary as his wedded wife, and then he moved on to live his life as though he was a single man. He didn't just accept her, he received her. In other words, there were wedded vows proclaimed. There was commitment, there was dedication to one another. The two have become one. There is now one goal, one purpose in life to live for. Please note what they did not receive. They didn't just receive Jesus' teaching. Well, Jesus says, do this. What would Jesus do? Do that. I'll do that. No, not just that. Nor did they just receive historical facts about Jesus. Jesus fasted, Jesus walked in the water, Jesus performed miracles, Jesus died and rose again. These are historical facts. No. What did they receive? Him. Him as a person. How much of him? All of him. All of him. Let's break it down. Look look what they received now. Christ Jesus the Lord. First, they received him as Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Refers to the one who fulfilled all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. The prophet, the priest, the king, Christ. Second, they received him as Jesus, Christ Jesus. What does Jesus mean? It means God is salvation or Yahweh saves. And so they received him as the captain of their salvation, the author of their faith. So they would have rejected all other means to be saved. It is not Jesus plus Buddha. It is not Jesus plus good works. It is Jesus that they received as though they are, Paul is saying, the only personal savior you have. And they have come to a place where they relied entirely in Jesus for salvation. To receive him as Jesus means that to lean your whole weight on him, trusting in him entirely and absolutely for the forgiveness of sins. Have you done that? Have you come all the way to lean entirely upon Jesus alone for your sins to be forgiven? Now, furthermore, Christ Jesus, the Lord, they received him as the Lord, the one whom we place the entirety of our soul upon his hands, is not just the Savior, But he is Lord. What does it mean he is Lord? Well, you look at the Greek dictionary of what this word 
means. And I thought, right, I'm not going to use my brain. I'm just going to copy and paste what the Greek dictionary tells me of what this Lord means. And these are the following. I've got ten different ways of interpreting what the word Lord means. Number one, it means he's the owner. That's what Lord is, owner. Number two, master. So we are his possessions. And if he's the master, then what are we? His slaves. Number three, authoritative. Four, ruler and controller. The one who commands. The most important, supreme. Jehovah. And finally, God. This is who Jesus is. You don't come and receive him as your savior first, and then a few years later you receive him as Lord. No. It doesn't make sense. He's always Lord. The one who died and rose again to redeem us is our Lord. Christ Jesus, the Lord. Now, to put it into context here now, what Paul is basically saying is that in order to resist the lies of the world, we are to walk in Christ Jesus the same way we received him. What does this mean? This is what it means, brothers and sisters. Even in the face of the pressure and the current of the world that wants us to pull us the opposite direction, this is what it means. We are to see Jesus as the center of everything. And we want to see everything through Jesus Christ. Yeah, perhaps we may struggle with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, for sure. But we are resolved to want Christ to be all in all. And it does involve that we are to grow in treasuring Jesus in, in our heart as our Lord. It does involve that. That there is loyalty in this commitment. There is dedication. And we delight to place ourselves under the authority of His Lordship. And we recognize His absolute right to rule our lives. And we take pleasure to transfer the ownership of all we have and who we are into His hands. Step by step. Stride by stride, always following Him, fixing our eyes on Him, wanting nothing in the world more than to please Him. Be a faithful follower. This is too hard. How do we do this? How do we do this? We'll come to the third point. Be a healthy tree. That's how we do it. The only way to do it is to be a healthy tree. 
What does this mean? It means we must feed on Christ. So verse 7, and he says, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him. Firmly rooted and being built up in him. What a metaphor. It's a metaphor. And what a glorious one. What does it mean? It means this. It's as though that your soul is a tree. And your heart is the root. And we are to anchor our roots into Christ. We wrap our hearts around Him. We cling to Him. Why? Why? What should we do? Well, just, just as the roots suck all nutrition from the ground, so we too must nourish our souls by enjoying Christ, by deepening our understanding of Him. We become conscious of His presence in our lives, His position, His status, who He is in us. To be rooted and to be built up in Him means that we must tell Christ, Jesus, you be our vitamins and minerals. And we need to grow and be edified by you. By being nourished by you. Not being nourished by the love of my wife. Not being edified by having worldly possessions. Not feeling good and sense our well-being because of what we have. No. We anchor all our lives, all the decisions that we make in Him. And we will not divorce what satisfies us from you, Lord Jesus. No. No. Rather, we will attach our identity, our sense of well-being in our union with you. And in that way, we let His life to flow through our lives. Be a faithful follower. Number four, be a diligent student. Diligent. And we must always be in a school of the Word and never see ourselves graduate from studying His Word. Where do we get that? We move on to the next phrase. It says, and established in your faith. The word established here is the word strengthened. And strengthen your faith. Now this word, your faith, I don't believe Paul here is talking about, you know, your your personal faith. What do I mean personal faith? I mean, you know, uh, how much you really, really believe in Jesus. How much you put your trust in him. He already spoke about this in verse 5. We just spoke about it earlier. The personal faith. No, he's talking here about something else different. I believe this word faith is referring to the system of Christian truth. It's, it's like how Jude says the faith that which was once handed down to the saints. 
It's the Christian doctrine, the dogma, theology. They're strengthening their theology. Why do I think that? Well, look what he says. He says, established, which is strengthened your faith just as you were instructed. Now listen, no teacher could ever impart into you personal faith. No one could do that. All they can do is share with you theology, gospel, Christian truth. So what Paul is saying here to the Colossians, you Colossians were carefully taught a body of Christian truth. And if you're going to walk in Christ the way you receive them, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to move away from this intellectual laziness. You know, the fast food mentality, drive-through kind of theology. You're going to have to stop saying to yourself, I don't want to challenge my brain cells with more systematic teaching. You've got to move away from that. Where you can... Kind of hear from people, some Christians, and they have in their mind, they say, you know what, I like my Christian doctrine to be just like my pre-packaged diet food. Light and easy. Some of you are smiling. And I'm not sure if it was because you identify that, you know, what I just said with yourself, or it's just funny. I want to ask you, brothers, are we guilty of this? Are we guilty of that? Now, I want to help you understand something. I thank God there are more and more men who attend the theological men's study um, in the afternoon. I'm thankful to God for this. But I yet believe strongly that this is one of the biggest problems in Christianity today. Nobody wants to learn theology anymore. And I call this mental apathy syndrome, MAS. Where we are content with just a little bit of devotion, read a devotional book, just arouse our feelings, have a bit of goosebumps, and leave the juicy truth to the big guns, the theologians. Brothers, I want to challenge you. Think with me. If we're going to reduce our Christian teaching to only what makes us feel good, shallow, you know the superficial studies where there is no real heavy lifting, then what hope do we have if in defending the faith that we know little of? What hope? How are we going to discern truth from error? ChatGPT? Ah, <laughs> oh, but all I need is Jesus. True. True. All you need is Jesus. But, brothers, how do you know that the Jesus that you're enjoying is not a figment of your own imagination and it is not the Jesus of the Bible? 
How would we know if we don't strengthen our Christian faith that we're not walking behind the wrong Jesus exactly like what the holy, that false teachers want us to do? No, brethren. You know what? You know, we may begin our walk right. We can open our heart and worship Christ and cling to Him. That's great. But how many times have we seen this in many cultures and even in this culture? That if we let intellectual laziness creep in and we don't study heart, that we would shoot our Christian life dead in the heart. We won't be able to stand a chance to the powerful seduction and the lies of this world. You know what we should do? You know what we need to do? We need to be diligent like 2 Timothy 2.15 says, accurately handling the word of truth. We must treasure God's word in our heart like it says in Psalm 119 verse 11. Look what the scripture says. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 6 verses 6 and 7. Look what God says. Yahweh says. These words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. I, I, I can't see Netflix here. I, I can't see TikTok. I'm not saying don't have Netflix or else I'm taking to legalism, but this is our focus. What does this mean? Brothers, this is what it means. Especially men. You've got to wipe off the dust from the Wayne Grudem systematic theology and the Puritan books. Turn your, your study room into a spiritual gym and do bench press heavy lifting of theology, real heavy theology. I, I call upon you to study tirelessly the scripture, the word of God. Lap up those doctrines. Go ahead and connect phrases, underline imperative commands, highlight, you know, the cause and the effect. Be faithful. Just dive into God's Word. Read books and try to understand more and more even hard theology until such point that with false teachers come and cut you up, you bleed Scripture. That's what you have to do. So we're going to have to defend the faith, especially when we are so bombarded with so many lies in this world. That's four. Be diligent, student. Number five. Last one. Last one. Be a grateful worshiper. Beautiful. It's the best. Be a grateful worshiper. In other words, have a thankful heart. Look what it says. And overflowing with gratitude. Not just have gratitude, not just have a grateful heart. Overflow 
What does it mean? Abundant. Not just to the brim, but above the brim. Let it flow out of you. Let us hear it. Let me hear how grateful you are. Paul has in mind here that in order to counteract false teaching is by gratitude. You know, there's so much that can be said here. I've spent about maybe two sermons talking about being thankful, so I don't want to repeat myself. Go ahead and download them, listen to them. But I don't have much time left, so... I, I just want to focus on that one thing for now. How come? How is it that gratitude is a key weapon to fight against false teaching? Which, by the way, means that grumbling and complaining and whinging all the time is an excellent habitat for false teachers to invade you and lure you and take you back to the world. And that is true. But how is it gratitude is a key weapon to fight against false teaching? You see, here is the thing. When we study theology, let's say, for example, and that can apply to any kind of theology. When you study Christ's atonement, you know, open a good systematic theology book or a, any kind of book about atonement. And then you begin to research the substitution that took place. And how that there is a transfer of all our sin and guilt to Christ and there is a transfer of His righteousness into our account. And you begin to think the fact that he had to die to, to make this dual transaction effectual. And you say, very well. You studied, you studied well. But so far, up to this point, it's head knowledge, right? Now, what good is it? When you have all the right head knowledge and your heart is still attached to the world, grumbling, complaining, heart is a good breed for false teachers to lure you. Why? Because they don't appeal only to the intellect. They appeal to something else more powerful, and that is your affection. And if you are attached to the world... Then when they come to you and they tell you, hey, how about you find your identity, your well-being in what you possess and your heart is already lusting after that. Perfect match. I'll believe whatever you tell me. How come? Because I'm already consumed in my affection with the things of the world. You become an, an easy Pray for them to capture you and seduce you. But when you're grateful for that, when you're grateful for Christ's atonement, for example, and you say, God, Jesus died for me. 
He actually died for me. To save me. Jesus, the Son of God, the priceless, eternal, coexistent with the Father, gave up His life for me, the just for the unjust. And He began to meditate on this truth. And He said, why me? Oh God, why me? And when you're grateful for that, Guess what the flow and effect would be? You'd be joyful. What joy would fill your heart? What gladness? What contentment? Right? And then when when Benny Hinn comes along or Joyce Meyer, whatever, and they say to you, hey, listen, there is more in life than Jesus Christ. There is there is self-esteem. You've got to be proud of yourself. Blah, 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 all this rubbish. You know what you would say? Why would I ever want to be proud of myself? Don't you know? I'm grateful that I have Christ. He's enough for me. My heart bursts in Him alone. How come? He loved me. He died for me to forgive my sins. He granted me eternal life. I studied that and I meditated on that. And I'm content with that. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. How then can I move away from Him? So, can you see the flow and effect? Right? We cling to Christ. We want to be nourished by Him. Our roots suck all the ingredients, all the nutrition from Him. Then what happens? We want to know more about Him. So what do we do? We're compelled to give attention to the Scripture. We meditate on the Word of God. We want to know more about the one who nourishes our souls. And what is the output? Grateful heart. Grateful heart. How do we overcome the deadly cocktail of false teaching? By a superior and more powerful cocktail of Christ. Where Jesus, through his word, is the input, the process, and the output of our lives. That is the only way of how to fight against false teaching. Be a good soldier. Be a faithful follower. A healthy tree. A diligent student. And a grateful worshiper. Now, for those among us who do not know Christ yet, as I just said in the last point, what good is it that you have all the head knowledge of the truth, but your heart is disconnected from Him? Do you know the the distance between heaven and hell? Do you know how big it is? It's been measured so many times. And you know how they worked it out? You know what the distance is? 30 centimeters. Between the head and the heart. If all that you know is scripture, and you know it really well, and you keep it in your head, and you disconnect that, 
from coming to Christ and worship Him from your heart if you do not believe in your heart that He is Lord. Not only would you be lured by the most flimsy and weak false teacher, but you are already condemned by God and you're headed for hell. And you will spend the whole eternity burning in hell because of the wickedness that resides in your heart. Because you never wanted to believe in Jesus Christ. And you know the time that takes, not just now the distance, but the time between you and hell is a moment, is a twinkle of an eye. It is not going to be tomorrow or the day after. God would take your life today away from you and you will never have any more opportunity to repent. And you know what? Holding God back from casting you into hell? You read the scripture. I dare you to find one reason other than his sheer mercy. Nothing else. Inside of you, there's nothing but wickedness. And God who is perfect in righteousness, God who is perfect in holiness, would look upon the least of the least sins that you're committing, and He abhors it. He detests it. He loathes all sins. And He's ready to cast you into hell. Any moment. And he's not under any obligation to spare your life even for a twinkle of an eye. Oh, friend, I plead with you. Consider your eternity. Consider where you're heading this moment if God would wish to take away your life. As holy and righteous as he Yet how merciful, how compassionate that though day and night you shake your fist against the Almighty, yet He sent His Son to die on a cross for sinners. Not sinners that love Him, sinners that hate Him, sinners that reject Him. Not sinners that do little tiny sins, but even the most wicked and vile sins. Sinners that have a black heart like yours. He dies for sinners like yours, like you. I plead with you, as Jesus stretching his hand to you, don't spit on it. Get on your knees. Beg him to save you. Call upon him. Tell him, Jesus, Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Open my eyes. Awaken me from my death. You called upon Lazarus to come forth. Jesus, call upon my soul to come to you. Hide in Jesus Christ. He will save you. He will cleanse you. He will forgive you. And He will give you eternal life. And what a life it would be. A beautiful journey where you would walk behind him, close to him. You would have him as your, as your bridegroom. And he would love you as a bridegroom would love his bride. Call upon him today, friend.
He will save you in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you, Lord. Thank you. The truth of your word is not hidden or mysterious that we cannot understand it. You made it so simple that even little children can understand the gospel. But what good is it, Lord, if we understand it with our mind, but your spirit would not convict our hearts? Oh, convict us, Lord. Open our eyes. Let us see the value, the infinite worth of Christ. That in him alone we find refuge from false teachers. That in Christ alone there is light that shines and brings clarity and direction in our life. Lord, we pray that Christ may reign supreme among every soul and within the heart of every person in this room. Amen.